Welcome to our continuing 2020 educational webinar series. I am Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. And we help you manage every aspect of a compliance program and our training library provides hundreds of modules that are easy to assign and track. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. This webinar is brought to you by First Healthcare Compliance as part of our commitment to provide high quality complimentary educational webinar series. We help create confidence among compliance professionals throughout the United States. Please show your support by taking a few minutes to provide a review of First Healthcare Compliance on places such as Google or Facebook. And you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and subscribe to our YouTube channel where you will find archives of our webinars. We are so pleased to have two excellent co-presenters today, Emily A. Johnson and Courtney Tito, members at McDonald Hopkins LLC. McDonald Hopkins is a business advisory and advocacy law firm with offices in six locations, Chicago, Cleveland, Columbus, Detroit, Miami, and West Palm Beach. Emily Johnson in the Chicago office focuses her practice on matters primarily for clients in the healthcare industry. She provides regulatory and compliance assistance on both a federal and state level. She has assisted clinical laboratories, hospitals, long-term acute care hospitals, community hospitals, physician specialty groups, telehealth providers, surgery centers, healthcare associations, pharmacies, and other healthcare providers on regulatory, licensing, compliance, reimbursement, contractual, and corporate matters. She has provided support to entities during licensure and accreditation surveys and assisted in navigating state professional licensure laws, CLIA standards, and state and federal laboratory laws and regulations, government and private payer reimbursement, state and federal fraud and abuse rules, state telehealth laws, and state and federal pharmacy regulation. She also has advised clients on direct-to-consumer testing issues and applicable state requirements. She also has experience with provider-based compliance issues and the 340B federal drug pricing program, including implementation, program compliance, audit preparation, and preparing for audits conducted by the Office of Pharmacy Affairs. In addition, she has significant experience with HIPAA compliance, including drafting HIPAA policies and procedures, breach response and notification, drafting responses to investigations conducted by the Office for civil rights and advising clients on proactive HIPAA compliance and breach prevention. Prior to joining McDonald Hopkins, Emily served as healthcare attorney senior consultant at a national-based healthcare management consulting firm and outside counsel to the National Association of Boards of Pharmacy. Emily earned a JD from the John Marshall Law School in 2010. She received her BA Dean's List from Illinois Wesleyan University in 2005. Courtney Titu, lo located in the West Palm Beach office, counsels and represents clients in the health, health law industry, including federal and private payer audits and disputes, reimbursement, contract, corporate enrollment, revocations, 
payment suspensions, internal investigations, compliance and regulatory, and in responding to federal subpoenas and civil investigative demands. She advises clients on both federal and state matters. Courtney has counseled clients on regulatory licensing, compliance, reimbursement, corporate, CLIA standards, state and federal fraud and abuse rules, and regulations and telehealth matters. Courtney has also advised clients regarding direct-to-consumer issues. Prior to joining the firm, Courtney served as a staff attorney for the Public International Law and Policy Group from 2006 to 2007 in Baghdad, Iraq. She worked with legislatures and federal Supreme Court advising and the federal Supreme Court advising senior ranking officials on drafting implementing legislation, amending current legislation, and amending the Constitution. Courtney received an MA from American University School of International Service in 2004. She, adjourned, she earned her JD cum laude from American University Washington College of Law in 2003 and a BA from James Madison University in 97. A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions in the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There is no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. A download of the handout is available with a button on the bottom right-hand side of your screen. So Emily and Courtney, a very warm welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you so much for having us. It's our pleasure to be presenting on this topic today. So as Catherine noted, today we're going to um, be discussing the federal fraud and abuse laws as well as some state and payer nuances. Um, and we will also discuss how the current national pandemic has impacted some of those same regs and compliance. Um, so, one second, sorry, okay. So, um, this screen just has our contact information. If you have any questions related to the presentation, certainly do not hesitate to reach out to us. Um, we'd be happy to answer any questions you may have. All right. So. We are going to talk about a few things today. Um, most of the regulatory framework we are concerned about when talking about fraud and abuse issues is the federal rules and regulations surrounding kickbacks and inducements and prohibited referrals based on certain financial relationships among providers. So from a federal standpoint, that means the anti-kickback statute, um, which applies to any referrals from anyone, and we'll go into more specifics about what these laws are on the next pages, um, but just as an overview, um, we'll also be talking about the physician self-referral law, which is commonly referred to as the Stark Law. This applies to referrals of designated health services by physicians. We will talk about the False Claims Act and the Reverse False Claims Act, which applies when a claim is submitted to a government payer in violation of the anti-kickback statute or Stark. Um, or the anti-markup rule or any other federal regulation concerning how claims are submitted for Medicare or Medicaid or another government payer. 
We will talk about the Eliminating Kickbacks and Recovery Act. It was a new law that, or I should say newer law, that resembles the anti-kickback statute um, and has similar prohibitions on kickbacks and inducements. We'll also discuss the anti-markup rule and account billing regulations. Um, the federal anti-markup rule prohibits providers from marking up the cost of services they don't personally perform, except in certain circumstances. Um, and this rule relates primarily to purchase diagnostic testing and won't necessarily be relevant to everyone in the audience, but it's definitely worth a quick overview for those who are in the lab space or who have um, lab providers come and perform services or pathology groups come and perform services in their offices. Um, with respect to state law, you know, most states have their own equivalent of Stark and Anna kickback that providers have to be aware of, so we will cover this generally. And states also have their own anti, certain states have their own anti-markup um, or account billing regulations. Again, these typically come into play with TC technical component and professional component arrangements that impact um, labs and pathology groups. So, you know, as I just stated, I know our audience includes more than just those types of providers, so we will just go over this generally. And then we will discuss payer and contract restrictions, or payer contract restrictions. Um, many payers require providers to follow the federal rules and regulations surrounding fraud and abuse, um, or have written their own equivalent of those types of regulations that providers are obligated to comply with. So there's a pretty robust framework for fraud and abuse compliance when we talk about it. It's not just the federal rules, right? It's the federal rules layered with state rules, and then the final layer is the payer, um, payer policies and procedures and the payer contract itself. Um, and then, yes, as I mentioned at the beginning, we'll also be talking about how COVID has impacted compliance with all of these. Um, Courtney and I are going to kind of tag team this presentation, so you'll hear from both of us throughout the presentation. Um, and so, you know, again, if you have any questions, we will be happy to answer any of those at the end. So the legal framework when we're talking about um, compliance with fraud and abuse regulations in the healthcare space is an interesting one. When you think of the outside world, everything other than healthcare, there are incentives everywhere for using services of a particular provider. There's cash back credit cards, for example, when you buy a cell phone, you know, you can get a $50 Visa gift card from Verizon or whomever your provider is. There's the concept of frequent flyer miles where you purchase airline tickets using an airline-sponsored credit card and perhaps get double miles or some other incentive. Um, free gifts with a purchase, one free with the purchase of three, buy one, get one. We've all heard these terms and it's commonplace in the non-healthcare world to have these types of incentives to induce people to purchase products from a particular um, vendor. So why is that prohibited in the healthcare world, right? Why are healthcare entities treated differently? And the rationale is, from the government's perspective, that judgments about medical care should not be influenced by financial incentives. So you shouldn't choose your provider, you shouldn't choose, a provider shouldn't choose their, um, their laboratory to perform services or the radiology group to perform services based on financial incentives, their relationship with those folks. Instead, the judgments about a patient's care and referrals for services should be based solely on medical necessity 
given the patient's actual medical condition and not the financial relationship. Um, you know, the government has found that these inappropriate arrangements result in overutilization. Um, you know, more lab tests are ordered, more referrals are given because of the compensation relationship that might exist between providers. And the effect of this is that it drives up costs of um, Medicare and even in the private payers, right? Because now the insurance providers and the federal government are on the hook for the services that might not be medically necessary and are just being performed to um, yield some sort of revenue for the performing providers. Um, it has been proven to influence medical decision making and creates unfair competition and causes patient steering. So that is, you know, the distinction. It can be frustrating when you're in this space having to deal with these rules, but when you think about why the government has created them to protect the patients, I mean, that's really the goal here, to protect the patients and keep costs down, it does make sense. Okay, so I'm gonna turn it over to Courtney. Courtney's gonna talk a little bit about the anti-kickback statute, and then we'll keep going. Thanks so much, Emily. Again, I just wanted to reiterate that we're really happy to be here with you today to give you a refresher and update on this framework. So the first thing that we're gonna talk about is the anti-kickback statute, which is a federal statute that has three main elements, and those are the first three big bulletin, uh, bullet points there. One, it prohibits the knowing and willful to payment or receipt of remuneration, three, to induce patient referrals. So that first element is directed at the intent that is required for a violation of the statute in that the actions must be knowing and willful. The intent has to be proven, so there's gotta be evidence of this element. Without it, there's no AKS violation. Element two talks about payment or receipt of payment which means that the parties or the entities on both sides of the transaction can be guilty of violating AKS. Um, remuneration is simply anything of value, and Emily you know, talked about some of these um, just a minute ago, cash, free rent, meals, donations, things like that. And then element three talks about the inducement of patient referrals or driving patients or patient services to a provider. Um, the anti-kickback statute does have voluntary safe harbors, but these aren't required. Um, it is also important to note that there does not need to be patient harm or financial loss to the federal health care program for there to be a violation of the anti-kickback statute. So what that means in practice is that even if a provider actually provides a medically necessary service, there can still be a kickback violation because it's more about how those referrals were brought to a particular provider. Um, the anti-kickback statute can apply to referrals from anyone, which um, is different than the Stark Law, which Emily's gonna talk about next, because there does not have to be a physician involved in the transaction for there to be an anti-kickback statute violation. Um, next, I just wanna touch um, on the penalties for AKS violations, um, these cases can be brought as either criminal or civil cases. Criminal penalties include fines up to $25,000 per violation or up to five, and up to five years in prison per violation. Now, I'm just gonna say that again, those fines and prison terms are per violation, so they can add up significantly. Um, these civil and administrative penalties include False Claims Act liability, which I will talk about later in the program, 
There are civil monetary penalties that can be up to $50,000 per violation. Uh, there can be program exclusion, which means that for a certain period of time or indefinitely, you can be barred from providing services under one of the federal health care programs. And that can be just devastating for certain providers. Um, and there can also be civil assessments up to three times the kickback. Uh, it's also important to note that the Affordable Care Act made violations of the AKS per se violations of the False Claims Act. And what that means is if you are found guilty of the anti-kickback statute, then you are subject to the penalties of the False Claims Act because you are also guilty of a False Claims Act violation. Many of these cases are brought by whistleblowers, and I'll touch on a few of the recent settlements and cases in a few minutes if we have time. Um, but I really want to make sure that we have time to discuss um, the COVID implications and all of this as we go through. So I'm going to turn this back over to Emily so she can talk to you about the Sterk Law. Great. Thanks, Courtney. So the physician self-referral law, the Stark law, um, is a strict liability statute. So it's a little bit different than the anti-kickback statute that Courtney just talked about. Um, there, there is no intent element. So the Stark law prohibits a physician from referring to an entity furnishing designated health services with which the physician or a family member, such as a spouse, child, sibling, et cetera, has a financial relationship unless the arrangement meets all requirements of an exception. Um, so unlike Anna Kickback, which has voluntary safe harbors, um, unless you fit squarely within an exception, there is a deemed violation of the SARC law. Um, so let's break this down a little bit more. The referral for purposes of the SARC law must be from a physician which again is different from the anti-kickback statute, which applies to referrals from anyone. So it must be from a physician and it must be for designated health services or what we refer to as DHS. DHS is a specific list of services. Um, it includes lab services, certain therapy services, radiology and imaging, radiation therapy and supplies, durable medical equipment and supplies, parenteral and enteral nutrients, um, equipment and supplies, home health services, outpatient prescription drugs, and inpatient and outpatient hospital services. Um, there's a list of DHS and corresponding CPT codes on the CMS website that you can look at if you're concerned about the services you provide and whether or not they qualify as DHS for purposes of Stark. Um, it's a really great resource, so I encourage you to visit that site. Um, like I said, unlike anti-kickback, Stark has no intent standard and is a strict liability law um, with respect to overpayments. Um, however, intent does play a factor um, or a role in the government's decision to issue civil monetary penalties for knowing violations of the Stark law. Um, the anti-kickback statute, like, we, like Courtney said, has the concept of voluntary safe harbor. The state Stark law has the mandatory exceptions. Under anti-kickback, an arrangement is protected if it fits within a safe harbor. Even if it does not, the party's intent is considered when determining whether a violation has occurred. But with respect to Stark, if the arrangement doesn't fit within that exception, there is a violation, and then any referrals that are generated by or money received in connection with that arrangement are deemed to be tainted by the arrangement, and that money um, from Medicare or from the corresponding payer 
um, federal payer should be returned because it's going to be deemed an overpayment. Um, the penalties for a Stark law violation are civil. Um, they are not criminal and they include overpayment or refund obligations like we just talked about, um, liability under the False Claims Act, which I know Courtney is going to discuss, um, civil monetary penalties and program exclusion for knowing violations. Uh, Courtney gave a good description of, you know, what the um, civil monetary penalty structure is like. Um, and then potential treble damages, right? So it is something that should not be taken lightly. Also a penalty um, for violating the Stark law may also give rise to anti-kickback statute violations. So if you think you're on the hook for just the Stark law, they're probably gonna rope in the OIG, who's going to look at it from a kickback perspective, as well as um, there could be potential violations of state law equivalents of the same um, type of prohibitions. Um, so again, like I said at the beginning, it's, it's more than just the one law, there, there's layered intricacies of all of these. Okay, so when we're talking about Stark, we're talking about financial relationships. Unlike Anna Kickback, which prohibits referrals of any kind, Stark prohibits only the referral of DHS where a prohibited financial interest or financial relationship is involved. So what is a financial relationship? They can be compensation arrangements um, or ownership or investment interests. Compensation arrangements can be in any form of direct or indirect remuneration with an entity that furnishes DHS. Um, it includes compensation from an entity that has a compensation relationship with an entity that furnishes the DHS. So it basically includes money that's paid by an entity that has a compensation relationship with the entity furnishing the DHS, which is that indirect relationship we talked about. A direct relationship exists if um, remuneration or some concept of money in kind, whatever, um, some, something of value passes between the referring physician or a member of his or her immediate family and the entity furnishing the DHS without any intervening persons or entities between the entity furnishing the DHS and the referring physician or his family member. An indirect relationship exists if there is an unbroken chain of any number, at least one, but any number of persons or entities having an ownership or investment or financial relationship between the referring physician and the entity furnishing the DHS. And the entity furnishing the DHS has actual knowledge of or act in reckless disregard or deliberate ignorance of the fact that the referring physician or his family member has some sort of financial interest in the entity furnishing the DHS, right? So what does that mean? That's a lot of legalese there. Basically, if there's a compensation or other financial relationship with a physician who's referring DHS to an entity, then you need to carefully evaluate that relationship to see if you, it can fit within one of the Stark exceptions. If it doesn't fit within one of the Stark exceptions, the referrals generated by the relationship will be deemed to be Stark law violations, which will put you in that penalty situation that we talked about on the last slide. Um, with respect to the um, ownership interests and investment interests, these can be in debt, equity, stocks, 
um, membership interest LLCs. Um, so, you know, it's not just the straight up ownership interest. There's various types of ownership that should be evaluated, various types of ownership and investment, I should say, that should be evaluated when considering whether a financial relationship exists. Um, the exceptions to the Stark Law permit certain financial relationships that would fall within these definitions um, so long as certain conditions are met. Um, and one overarching requirement of, I think, every Stark exception is that there be a written agreement between the provider of DHS and the referring physician. So it has to be in writing. That's not the only requirement, but that is sort of the uniform requirement among all of them. Each exception has its own elements that must be satisfied though. So it's important to turn to the exceptions. And um, if you truly are structuring a relationship that has stark implications, I can't stress enough the importance of working with somebody who understands the stark law well so that they can help structure your um, arrangement or relationship in a manner that fits within the, the applicable exception. All right, moving on to the anti-markup rule. Um, you know, as I said at the beginning, this is a Medicare rule that applies to the technical component um, and professional component of anatomic pathology. I know that's not the sole audience that we have here today, but it might impact folks who have an in-office lab or have pathologists that are performing professional component services for them. You know, this happens a lot in dermatology offices, um, uh, GI offices. So um, these, these same concepts apply here. The thing about the anti-markup rule that's frustrating is that many arrangements that have been structured to fit into the in-office ancillary services exception to the Stark Law um, become complicated by the anti-markup rule because your otherwise compliant relationship that fits within the, the in-office ancillary exception um, doesn't work under the anti-markup rule unless the anti-markup requirements are satisfied. So what that means is that the services that are performed pursuant to the in-office ancillary services exception can't be marked up beyond their actual cost unless they fit within the, the requirements of the rule. Um, so the rule itself prohibits marking up if the referring physician or his group practice does not perform or supervise the service. Um, it doesn't apply if the physician does not order the test or if the performing or supervising physician is deemed to share a practice with the referring physician. Um, when, or, or let's talk through actually what this concept of sharing a practice means, right? So there's, there's two tests to determine if you can satisfy that requirement. The first is known as the substantially all test. It requires the performing physician to perform 75% or substantially all of his or her professional services through the referring practice. Um, practically, this is very difficult because it requires the performing doctor to essentially dedicate at least 75% of his or her practice to the physician group. This might not be a big deal for a W-2 physician, but it's not great for a 1099 who might not have a full plate of work and would like to supplement income um, because this essentially prohibits him or her from performing more than 25% of his or her work for any other group. Um, so it can be frustrating 
The other test, in, in my experience, the more commonly used test is the um, office, the site of service test um, for the office of the billing physician. So this test requires that the services be performed in, quote, the office of the billing physician. This can be any medical office space, regardless of the number of locations, but the catch is it must be a space in which the ordering physician regularly furnishes patient care. So it can't just be like a closet attached to an ASC where a GI doc um, goes and performs some procedures, right? Because that's not the location that the GI doc is performing substantially the full range of his services and regularly furnishing patient care. It has to be a location at which that doctor is actually seeing and treating patients. So when the anti-markup payment limitation applies, the payment to the billing physician can't exceed the lowest of the following, either the performing provider's net charge to the billing physician for so the actual cost, um, the billing physician's actual charge for the services, or the Medicare physician fee schedule amount for the test that would be allowed if the performing provider billed directly. Um, moving on, I'm going to let Courtney talk about the False Claims Act and how it plays with both or with the Stark Law, the anti-kickback statute, and then also the anti-markup rule. Thanks, Emily. So the False Claims Act makes it illegal to knowingly submit a false claim to the government. It is, I think Emily alluded to this earlier, um, it is not a healthcare statute, um, and it can be applied more broadly, but for our purposes today, I'm only speaking about its application to federal healthcare programs like Medicare, Medicaid, TRICARE. Etc. Violations of this act can be either criminal or civil, and the penalties include fines, exclusion, prison, obviously prison is only if it's a criminal violation, and the most devastating of all is treble damages. Um, false claims liability can also apply if a provider causes another provider to submit a false claim to the government. So I think Emily's done a really good job when she's been talking about both the Stark Law and the um, anti-markup that if you structure your arrangements, if you structure how you do your practice, and this applies you know, as well with the kickback statute, if you structure it wrong from the beginning and you're doing something in violation of one of those statutes, then as Emily said, all the billings from that become tainted. Um, and there is an overpayment requirement or there is um, that idea that you are submitting false claims to the government. So it's really important when you're when you're thinking about the federal health care fraud and abuse framework is that these statutes and rules don't operate in isolation and they're very integrated. And that I think is you know really well demonstrated by the application of the False Claims Act. I think that was really driven home by the changes in the Affordable Care Act that made violations of the anti-kickback statute um, per se violations of the False Claims Act. So these typically cases that are brought by the government will implicate more than one of these statutes and these um, regulations. It'll Sometimes it'll be all three. Sometimes it'll be stark anti-kickback and false claims. It might just be anti-kickback and false claims, but you really need to understand that they don't operate in isolation. So some of the common false claims um, violations include lack of medical necessity, 
quality of care concerns, billing and coding issues, and retention of overpayments, which we will get to um, later in the program. For this False Claims Act, knowledge is required for a violation of this statute, but it's not simply actual knowledge. It can be deliberate ignorance or reckless disregard of the falsity of a claim. That means you can't stick your fingers in your ears and say la 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 and pretend that you don't know that something is a violation or choose not to investigate whether it would be a false claim. Um, you can't bury your head in the sand. You have to be proactive about making sure that what you're submitting to the government is um, an actual um, true claim and not a false claim. Um, I want to take just a couple minutes um, to go through some examples I pulled of in recent enforcement actions for these fraud and abuse statutes. And the ones I pulled are three of them that are just from June of this year. So in the middle of a public health emergency, um, the government is still enforcing these um, fraud and abuse laws. So the first one I want to talk about was a um, the last of six defendants was sentenced for crimes related to a health care fraud conspiracy. Um, in this one, Medicaid was billed $48 million for drug and alcohol recovery services, many of which weren't provided, they weren't medically necessary, they lacked proper documentation, or had other issues that made them ineligible for reimbursement. And this defendant was sentenced to 27 months of imprisonment and ordered to pay almost $16 million in restitution after pleading guilty to a single count of healthcare fraud conspiracy. So the reason I brought this one to, to attention was, um, you know, lacking proper documentation. There's a lot of things that we could unpack with this case, but for this one, I think it's important to remember that for most federal healthcare programs, they're evidence-based. So if you don't document it, it's as if it didn't happen. So for your billing, for your reimbursements, all of that needs to be properly documented in accordance with what's allowed by the regulations and the statutes of the government. And that goes back to the anti-markup rule. That goes back to Stark Law and making sure your tra transactions are properly documented. Like Emily said, you need a written agreement. Um, making sure that when you're structuring arrangements that you're not violating the anti-kickback statute and documenting why you think you have complied with these rules. Um, another one is nine pharmacists were charged in a, in, for their role in a $12.1 million healthcare fraud scheme. In this one, the indictment alleged that the pharmacies billed Medicare, Medicaid, and a private um, commercial payer, Blue Cross Blue Shield, for prescription medications that weren't purchased or dispensed. Um, they, um, again, they were talking about these um, billings to Medicare and Medicaid that for medications that were medically unnecessary and some were that were purportedly dispensed to beneficiaries after they had died. Another one, um, Florida, uh, another pharmacy one where they were charged for their role in a $54 million compact, compound pharmacy kickback scheme. Um, the allegations stemmed from the defendant's participation in a, in a multi-million dollar conspiracy to defraud TRICARE, which is sort of the military version of Medicare and that the defendants actually created a separate company, Florida Pharmacy Solutions, for the purpose of targeting these beneficiaries and causing submission of claims to TRICARE. They you know, alleged that the drugs were not legitimately prescribed, that they had been induced and procured by payment of illegal kickbacks and bribes, 
And as a result of that, TRICARE paid $41 million to the Florida Pharmacy Solutions entity on those claims. And that a single defendant had paid more than $20 million in healthcare kickbacks to others in return for procuring and referring prescriptions. So those are examples from June of 2020. Um, so I think, you know, it's important not to lose sight of the fact that this is all still going on, even though we have so many other things to worry about in this day and age. And with the public health emergency is that the government is not backing down on its enforcement of these these laws. Um, so just remember to continually take these um, seriously. I am going to get into some more detail later about the COVID-19 implications for this, but for now I'm going to turn it back over to Emily, who is going to speak with you guys about ECRA. Thanks, Courtney. So um, the Eliminating Kickbacks and Recovery Act, also known as ECRA, has been the source of much frustration since it was passed in October 2018. Um, you know, I could speak all day on ECRA's implications, but um, I'll try to make this brief. So it was passed as part of the Support Act, which was um, aimed to curb the nation's opioid epidemic. Um, the act impacts recovery homes, clinical treatment facilities, and laboratories. What's important when we're talking about ECRA is that the term laboratory is um, defined as it's defined in the CLIA regs, so it includes any type of laboratory, and it is not limited, therefore, um, to those labs performing toxicology or substance abuse testing. So as a result, ECRA is extremely broad and arguably much broader than it was intended to apply in any laboratory, um, even if it's performing, you know, some sort of non-substance abuse testing, has to comply with ECRA. The law itself is similar to the anti-kickback statute, um, has similar inducement prohibitions, but the distinction, whereas the anti-kickback statute um, applies to government payers, right? ECRA actually applies to all payers, um, not just federal. So it applies to private payers, um, as well as Medicare, Medicaid, TRICARE, um, et cetera. So I guess the only way to sort of circumvent, if that's what you're looking to do, ECRA, um, would be to operate a fully cash-based business, um, because the concept of self-pay is not really written into ECRA, so it has its own regulatory implications. Um, so, you know, historically, if an arrangement didn't include government payers, and you were only billing private payers, Providers had a bit of flexibility um, with respect to certain arrangements that could be perceived as kickbacks, but wouldn't meet the requirements to be um, violations under the anti-kickback statute. Um, so, you know, you'd still be subject in those situations to state anti-kickback requirements, but not federal. But that's no longer the case with ECRA. So what does ECRA prohibit? It is an intent-based statute. Um, it prohibits knowingly and willfully soliciting or receiving any remuneration, either directly or indirectly, for referring an individual to a recovery home, a clinical treatment facility, or a lab, um, or paying or offering any remuneration directly or indirectly to 
to induce a referral to a recovery home clinical treatment facility or lab, um, or in exchange for the individual using the services of a particular recovery home clinical treatment facility or lab. So even the, the text of ECRA itself um, speaks in terms of the same concept of substance abuse um, and toxicology and that sort of thing and curbing the opioid epidemic, but the definition of lab is just so broad that we can't um, limit its application to all labs. Um, the biggest impact that we've seen of ECRA is on sales reps. Um, so ECRA has a prohibition for payment that is determined or varied by the number of individuals referred, the number of tests performed, or the amount builder received from a payer. So, you know, under in a kickback statute, there um, has always been concern paying sales reps a percentage um, based compensation, even though in practice we know this happens all the time. Um, but there's been protection under the bona fide employee safe harbor that as long as somebody was employed as a bona fide um, employee and met the requirements for being an employee, um, providers or employers, I should say, had flexibility in how they paid individuals, which would include flexibility for percentage-based arrangements. Um, ECRA goes a step further and prohibits payments that varies on um, volume or value or number of individuals, et cetera, um, to both um, 1099s as well as W-2s. So that same safe harbor we had for under the anti-kickback statute doesn't apply here or isn't valid here. Um, and the prohibited conduct is prohibited for W-2s as well. So it's not quite clear what the interplay is expected to be or anticipated to be between anti-kickback and ECRA. Um, the government in conversations um, about ECRA has noted that it's sort of um, broader than intended, um, but they have point blank said, yeah, we realize it's not great, but it's written the way it's written, and if we want to enforce it, we can. Which is a really crummy thing to hear when you're a provider trying to structure a relationship that complies, and you have years and years of precedent under the anti-kickback statute um, for W-2 sales reps and compensation paid to those individuals, and now you don't have that same protection under ECRA. So, um, you know, the, the industry, the lab industry, um, or anybody paying sales reps has really taken issue with ECRA because it's impacted how they're supposed to do business now. Um, so with respect to ECRA, you know, when it was first published, everybody freaked out. And then everybody kind of took a back seat, sat there and said, okay, let's kind of take the temperature of the rest of the industry, see what everybody's doing, and reassess as this thing moves forward. Hopefully we'll have some sort of amendment or legislative guidance or something. So we actually expected that there would be some sort of reform or guidance at the end of 2019. There were supposed to be some key stakeholder meetings um, to talk about how ECRA and Anna Kickback were supposed to work together and whether ECRA needed to be amended. Um, unfortunately, at that time, the impeachment proceedings kicked ECRA to the back seat, and um, those meetings didn't happen, or to our knowledge, didn't happen. Um, follow that up with COVID, and now ECRA, I think, is kind of the furthest thing on everybody's mind, and what that means is it's now been on the books for almost two years, and it, we are now starting to see providers change their business models because 
not only has it been a law for two years and it hasn't changed, but there was actually an enforcement action earlier this year. Um, it was in January. It was out of, I think it was the Eastern District for Kentucky. Um, and an 80-year-old woman, yes, I said 80-year-old woman, pled guilty to, among other things, an ECRA violation. Um, so, you know, and the facts of that case were pretty extreme, the, the conduct that was alleged. Um, so it wasn't, you know, certainly just an ECRA violation that was um, deemed to be the biggest issue there. Um, but the takeaway is there is an enforcement action. The government's clearly willing to enforce it, even though um, it's written so poorly. And now providers need to be more careful because the government is enforcing it. So it'll be interesting to see where this goes. I doubt there will be any changes until after the election, um, but we are certainly keeping an eye on it because we still get questions about ECRA nearly daily, especially with you know how COVID has changed the game. And I know Courtney's gonna talk about this, but we're getting a lot more requests for um, sales and marketing arrangements to be reviewed and people who maybe historically weren't in the, the lab business are now getting into it because um, the sheer demand and volume of COVID testing that there is out there, um, they wanna get you know some skin in the game, but there are all these regulations that they have to comply with, including ECRA, which you know complicates things. Okay, the last sort of legal framework that I want to talk about, and I'm just going to touch on this briefly, um, are the state equivalents of anti-kickback and Stark. Um, many, many, many states, not most states, have their own equivalent of Stark and anti-kickback and fee splitting regulations. Sometimes those regulations are limited to just Medicaid. Other times it's limited to an, um, all insurance billing, so it would be Medicaid or private payers. And then finally, um, others apply without limitation. So it can be anything. Um, so when you're structuring an arrangement, after you've done your analysis from a federal perspective, it's important to turn to state law and see if there are any issues with your arrangement under state law. Um, also, client billing or account billing regulations um, and these types of relationships are still pretty popular. These generally apply to purchase services um, where a physician or a physician office typically purchases the technical component or professional component of services performed by someone else and then rebills those services to a payer at a higher price. Um, so this isn't done with Medicare. Um, it's typically done with the private payers. Medicare is excluded. Um, States have their own regulations on whether or not this is permitted. So there's four um, scenarios. The state either has a direct bill requirement, which requires the performing provider to bill and doesn't allow a pass-through arrangement. Um, there is a disclosure requirement where the um, physician office may be allowed to purchase and rebuild the services, but they have to disclose on the bill the name of the entity that actually performed the services for which they're billing for. Um, there are anti-markup states, which allow providers to rebill um, and um, enter into these types of arrangements, but there's a prohibition on marking up the services, right? So they can only purchase and rebill for the amount. So if I 
if I buy services from Courtney for $15, I can only bill the payer then $15. I can't mark up the cost, which begs the question then, why would you risk billing for services performed by somebody else if you can't have a financial benefit? From my perspective, it's just not worth the risk. Um, and then there are states that just have no regulations on, on this area and you can mark up and bill for purchase services. Those are getting to be less and less. More and more states have some sort of restriction or requirement, whether it's disclosure and a markup or direct bill requirement. Um, it's worth noting that even if this type of arrangement, um, an account billing and markup arrangement is permitted by state law, payers often prohibit these types of arrangements um, and will require the performing provider to bill. So it's critical that, you know, once you look at federal law, state law, now let's turn to the payer contract and confirm whether the payer permits you to bill for purchase services. Um, and if it doesn't say expressly in the contract, um, you know, if there's language in the agreement that says you have to comply with Medicare rules or regulations, um, you may be able to read into that that, um, you know, a purchase service arrangement that you're marking up the, the services might not um, sit well with that particular payer. When you violate a state anti-kickback statute or state start statute or um, the state regulations concerning account and client billing, the penalties can be similar to what you experience under start and anti-kickback from a federal standpoint, um, but they are with respect to state um, penalties. So it would be fine. Um, exclusion from Medicaid, right? Because state Medicaid is a state-sponsored or state um, regulated program so it wouldn't be an exclusion from medicare it would be an exclusion from medicaid so it can have medicare implications and then of course there can also be um, criminal penalties as well and that's going to vary by each state not every state is going to have a criminal penalty um, it might just be civil but um, definitely worth keeping an eye on when you're structuring your relationship and then moving on, the last thing that I think I'm talking about, and then I'll turn it back over to Courtney, is the CMS proposed rule. Um, this was to change the Stark Law and a kickback statute. So in October, I think it was October 9th, 2019, HHS proposed changes to Stark and a kickback and the civil monetary penalty law. And um, this was proposed as part of, you may have heard the term, HHS's regulatory sprint to coordinated care. Um, this is a big theme of HHS right now. They launched this campaign in 2018. The goal is to reduce the regulatory burden and incentivize coordinated care. So, you know, after taking a step back and evaluating the anti-kickback statute circle law and the CMP law, um, the regulators are concerned, finally, um, that perhaps some of these requirements unnecessarily hinder innovative arrangements, right? So as the medical, the practice of medicine evolves into more technological practice um, and a more collaborative practice, um, some of that growth and development is being hindered by Stark and Anna kickback. So they're trying to determine if there is a more prudent path forward. And that's sort of the goal of these proposed changes. Um, you know, they're intended to provide greater clarity for healthcare providers, participating in value-based arrangements, and providing coordinated care. Um, although, I guess it's worth noting that although Stark and Anna Kickback are distinctly separate, 
and enforced by two different agencies. So CMS is Stark, OIG is in a kickback. The proposed rules appear to be a coordinated effort by both agencies to address the challenges. Um, and just quickly, I'll touch on it and then I'll move on so Courtney can talk about COVID. Um, the Stark proposed rule includes new exceptions that are designed to further value-based care initiatives. Um, it proposes a long list of additional changes. It includes new compensation exceptions, as well as new defined terms. Um, it is worth noting that there is an attempt by CMS to define commercial reasonableness, as well as the volume and value standard and fair market value. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see what the final rule says with respect to those terms, because those are often debated definitions. Um, and then the Stark proposed rule also seeks to clarify the group practice requirement. The anti-kickback statute proposed rule seeks to modify some of the existing safe harbors. Um, it creates new safe harbors and creates um, new civil monetary penalty law exceptions. For a list of all those changes, HHS's website has a great summary of the proposed rule, so I encourage you all to visit that. But in the interest of time, I'm not going to go into specifics there, and I'm going to turn it back over to Courtney. Thanks. So before we get to the COVID-19 implications of um, the current public health crisis and the, the fraud and abuse framework, I do want to take a, just a little bit of time to talk about um, what's commonly known as the 60-day rule or the reverse false claims. Um, I think it's important to talk about this because it's an obligation that quite frequently gets forgotten or pushed to the wayside. And quite a few of our clients um, are not aware of the affirmative obligation that it places upon them. Um, but it's a serious obligation that providers have to comply with to avoid false claims liability. So as I'm sure most um, federal program providers know that you, it's by statute, you cannot keep um, any money any overpayment or any money that you've been paid to which you're not entitled. Um, there are regulations that were put in place. There's Part A and Part B um, regulations. There's um, Part C and D regulations. Uh, there are no Medicaid regulations yet, but generally it's accepted that if you um, follow the Medicare rule as far as the regulations for how to go about re refunding this money, um, that's sufficient. So if we can go to the next slide, Emily. Um, the, one of the, the reason that the rule gets the name reverse false claims is because in this case, it's not an, an affirmative act really that uh, the provider is doing, but a failure to do something it is required to do that causes the, um, the False Claims Act liability, which I want to remind you guys is treble damages. So it's, it's a, a big, big liability. The 60-day rule moniker comes from the obligation to report and refund any overpayment within 60 days of identification. So in practice, if you read the rule, a provider has eight months from receipt or discovery of credible information that there might be an overpayment to investigate and then report and refund. And that would include six months to conduct the investigation to identify an overpayment. And that word identify is really key, um, and it's defined in the rule, and it is a determination through reasonable diligence that an overpayment was received and a determination as to the amount or quantification as to the amount of that overpayment. So you need to have both of those things before there is an identification. Once you have an identified overpayment, that's when the 60-day clock starts. Um, 
the rule also defines reasonable diligence to include both proactive and reactive compliance activities in response to credible information. And I want to make sure to point out that uh, credible information can come from a variety of sources. <clears throat> Excuse me, for example, a hotline complaint, internal compliance billing reviews, and of course, if you get um, an overpayment demand uh, from a Medicare contractor, that would um, also be credible information. There is a six-year look back in the statute, so be sure that your document retention policies account for that as well. Um, if we can go to the next slide. I'm not gonna go through this slide. It's really just two best practice tips. You know, I could could and have done, you know, full one hour, hour and a half programs on the 60-day rule, but um, it's really important to note that, you know, you can structure these investigations um, to limit some of these things, but on the screen, you've got some, some best practices. So we will skip now, because I want to make sure we have some time to go through the COVID-19 ramifications. Um, Emily, I want to go ahead and invite you to jump in wherever you want on this section if you want to, because I know we're both dealing with a lot of clients with a lot of questions. Um, the mm -hmm. main areas I want to talk about are, are listed on the slides. So let's start with these 1135 waivers. Um, this is a section of the Social Security Act that allows HHS to temporarily modify or waive certain requirements of Medicare, Medicaid, CHIP, even HIPAA. Um, there are different kinds of 1135 waivers, and those include Medicare blanket waivers. And in an emergency such as the public health emergency that we're currently in, these blanket waivers are um, used to help beneficiaries access care by relaxing some of the requir requirements for both beneficiaries and providers. Um, where there is a blanket waiver on a topic, providers do not need to to apply or seek an individual 1135 waiver. That being said, if there is not a blanket waiver, you can seek individual waivers. Um, HHS has issued a number of blanket waivers applying to a number of topics, including flexibility for Medicare telehealth services. I think that's probably one of the biggest areas. Um, there's flexibilities related to hospitals regarding EMTALA and reporting requirements. There are provider enrollment flexibilities. There are waivers of sanctions under Stark, and CMS has an entire page dedicated to these waivers, and there's also um, a document you can download. I think when I looked at it yesterday, it was about 43 pages that lists and kind of gives a, a one-paragraph de uh, description of each of the waivers. Um, additionally, most, if not all, of the states have applied for waivers for their state Medicaid programs. Um, the next topic on the slide are provider relief funds, and really, um, more importantly, are their terms and conditions. And these have been a real moving target since they've come out, and we get regular requests from clients on how to interpret these. Should they even accept the provider relief funds based on what these terms and conditions require? Um, there is a website from HHS that is dedicated to provider re relief funds. I do want to caution you and forewarn you that the website changes all the time, not only with content but structure, and I don't think they're being very transparent on where the changes exist or the updates are, so I just caution you as you're going through that. Um, there are times where that changes daily. When I last reviewed the website, which was yesterday afternoon, there were 11 different provider relief funds and 11 different terms and condition um, documents that providers must attest to to use these funds. 
most of the terms and conditions are similar and have certain common issues, you know, general certifications about participation in Medicare, that the money will only be used to prevent, prepare, prepare for, and respond to coronavirus and will only reimburse expenses for healthcare-related expenses or lost revenues. Um, there is a, a sort of a no-windfall provision um, that says that you can't use money you receive from other sources to pay for the same ex um, expenses. And I just I bring this one up especially because I want to make note that this other sources is not limited to coronavirus fund sources. So be wary here of any other sources. So if you have an insurance um, payout that is to be used for certain things, you know, business loss insurance or something like that, you cannot then use your provider relief funds to do the same thing. So you're going to be need to be really careful about um, how you use these funds and tracking them. Um, and I want to make sure we have some time for questions. So I'm going to um, jump ahead a little bit in what I had prepared to um, what I want to what I consider to be the most crucial language that appears in the term con terms and conditions and it fits really well into this into this program and I'm just going to read it to you because I think the language is really important it says your commitment to full compliance with all terms and conditions is material to the secretary's decision to disperse these funds to you Non-compliance with any term or condition is grounds for the secretary to recoup some or all of the payment made from the relief fund. This language is critical because it sets up false, false claims liability for a, a provider's failure to comply with any term or condition. And the reason it does that is because of that language that says that it's material to the secretary's decision. False Claims Act litigation uh, has revolved a lot around what is material, and by putting that language in the terms and conditions, they are really cutting that defense off at the knees so that providers can't go back to HHS and say, it really wasn't material um, because of X, Y, and Z or these facts in our case. They are not only saying it is material, but that you are attesting to that and that if you don't comply, we can take our money back. So again, I remind everybody that the False Claims Act liability can lead to trouble damages, which is, you know, astronomical in some cases. Um, I won't spend a lot of time on this, but there are government agencies that have also issued policy statements like OIG and CMS regarding relaxment, re relaxing of enforcement discretion. Uh, OIG is um, has a, a statement that it's going to exercise enforcement discretion not to impose administrative sanctions under AKS for certain things that are covered by the blanket waivers, so certain remuneration covered by the blanket waivers, OIG is not going to um, exercise its enforcement discretion. And then CMS is exercising enforcement discretion related to CLIA provisions, um, and CLIA, which is the Clinical Lab Improvements Amendments, um, governs, governs labs, so there was some enforcement discretion that was set forth there. Courtney, this is Emily. So I just wanted, it, does it make sense to discuss briefly um, the the provider relief fund um, and the reporting requirements that were issued in, or the update to the reporting requirements that were done in June, I think it was June 13th earlier this week or late last week, um, and what sort of penalty there would be for non-compliance with those reporting requirements? Yeah, so the reporting requirements are part of the um, terms and conditions. 
Um, and like pretty much everything else that I think HHS has put out on these provider relief funds, I think they have done, unfortunately, a, a pretty poor job of being clear about what's required. I think they're trying by constantly re reorganizing the, the website and adding information, but there are reporting requirements. Um, everybody who has who accepts and receives provi uh, provider relief funds is required to do just sort of regular reporting to HHS, and HHS also has the right to come in and just look at your documents and get those documents if they want to. If you receive more than $150,000 from any of the coronavirus funds, and that's not just provider relief funds, it could be PPP, it could be pretty much anything, um, there are additional rep quarterly reporting requirements. There are separate quarterly requirements. Um, and what Emily is referring to is just on June 13th, HHS updated its FACS web, uh, page on the website to indicate that um, those separate quarterly uh, reports are not currently going to be required. I say currently because I don't know when that, when or if that will change, but for right now, those separate reporting requirements are not um, required. And for the, just the regular HHS reporting requirements that they are going to um, send notice to the providers that, to the recipients of these funds, as to the contents and the due dates for those reporting um, requirements. So what that means in practice is right now you're not reporting. Um, but again, I caution you to check this website regularly. Um, I think it is possible, maybe even likely, that as a recipient of these funds, you might get the notice from HHS prior to it being updated on the website. So make sure to check your mail, your portals, anywhere that you might get, possibly get communication from the HHS. Um, and then, you know, this sort of falls into some of the things I was going to talk about at the end, but just because you don't have to report yet, it is, in my opinion, critically important that you start the documentation now. And the real-time contemporaneous documentation is so much easier than having to try to come up with this later. Um, I believe post-COVID-19 enforcement will be swift and aggressive. I think it will touch every single area that COVID-19 has touched. And I think because the government has spent trillions of dollars and they are exceptionally good at clawing back healthcare spending, that this is going to be an area where they will be able to um, pull back money pretty pretty easily. So, you know, if you have questions about the documentation, things you can start doing now, you know, you can certainly reach out to us or reach out to your, your trusted counsel or, or consultants and think about the types of things that you should be doing. Um, that can be modified once HHS um, puts out its own requirements. But in the meantime, I think you just need to be dil diligent about um, about everything. Um, Emily, did you want to touch on that at all? No, I, yeah, no, I think you covered it. I, I think you hit the nail on the head that it's kind of changing constantly, but there will be reporting requirements. And so as long as you are following whatever the most recent updates are and, um, you know, actually meeting the, the requirements of those updates, then you should be okay. That sort of tricky part is making sure you are following those requirements because they do change so often as Courtney noted. Yeah, and I think we're just about out of time um, so that we can have just a little bit of time for questions, but I did want to say that, you know, 
these waivers, these COVID sort of relaxations are only in effect during the public health emergency. Some of them have varying sort of look back start dates. Some of them started in March. Some of them started in February. This could be for use of CPT codes. This could be for um, wait, enforcement discretion could be in April as opposed to going back farther. But most of them are pretty clearly, um, they pretty clearly state that the waiver or the relaxation or whatever it is will end on the same day that the public health emergency ends. So you need to make sure that you have transition plans in place so that you're not only making sure that you're doing everything to document your appropriate use of these funds and appropriate provision of services during the COVID-19 emergency, but that you're really ready to kind of turn on a dime um, for when the public health emergency ends. Um, so, I mean, there's so much more we could talk about, but uh, I think we're out of time, so I will turn it back over to um, Catherine. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. Um, we do have a few questions here. So, um, the first one is, for the 60-day rule, you mentioned factors for structuring the investigation. What did you mean about that, and what factors can be considered? Yeah, so... Um, one of the things I mentioned was that there's a six-year look back um, and that the, tr the triggering of um, an, invest an internal investigation is credible information of an overpayment. Well, those two things can be incredibly fact-specific. I apologize. So some of the, the circumstances that I've um, had for clients that have come to us for this is you know, we'll have a client who comes to us and says, look, we had an update to our billing software or we got a new billing software and there was an edit that wasn't properly done. The billing software was just implemented in June. It's September now. We just need to refund any of the problems in that three months. So when you have a situation like that, it is perfectly reasonable and legitimate to structure your investigation around the facts, meaning that you don't need to go back a full six years if you have something as simple as we screwed up when we were implementing our billing system. So you would structure your investigation. Maybe in this case, you would go back to April or May to show that it was done correctly prior to the billing change in the software, and then all the way through you know, October to show that once you fixed the change in the billing software, it was again um, being billed correctly. So you can structure the scope of the investigation based on the the duration based on the specific code, based on a specific provider. For example, you know, we hired this new doctor and he uses, you know, CPT code X when it really should have been CPT code Y. Well, you don't need to do a full six-year look back across all your claims. You can structure it specifically to the issues that are involved. Um, the other thing that you want to think about are, do you need a third-party consultant or an expert? Sometimes, and this happened in, in one of the cases where we had what was we thought was a billing software error, it turned out to be a much larger issue, where we had to do a full look back um, for a couple of codes for the full six years. Well, that's completely impractical for some um, services, because that could be thousands of claims. You can't look at all those claims to see if each individual one was properly billed. So sometimes you can get a statistical expert in to do a sample and then you can extrapolate. Again, I recommend you take advantage of getting an attorney involved as soon as there's credible information so that you can get the cover of attorney-client privilege um, to the extent possible over the investigation um, and then document everything. 
Okay, great. Um, the next question is, how do you repay an overpayment under the 60-day rule? Sure. So um, there are a number of different ways to repay under the 60-day rule. The most common one is just the MAC voluntary refund process. So each of the CMS MACs, this is for Medicare, each of the CMS MACs has um, their own forms and requirements. Um, you just go to the website and figure out how they want you to pay for it. You can do claims adjustments, credit balances, voluntary offsets. Um, you may also want to consider whether you need to do an OIG self-disclosure protocol. Are there anti-kickbacks at the basis for it? Or CMS has its own self-referral disclosure protocol, which is for start violations. Um, so this is something that, again, I would recommend that you go through the pros and cons of each of these types of refunds um, and the specific facts of the overpayment. Uh, with your attorney to figure out what the best route is. Okay, great. Um, are you guys able to provide us with some best practice tips for navigating through COVID-19? Sure, I'll come up with a couple and then I think I'll turn it over to Emily as well. Um, I think one of the big ones I would suggest is to stay on top of the regulatory changes and relaxations, whether that takes the form of appointing a specific person for a specific issue, um, checking the websites daily, doing what you need to to make sure that you have the information you need. Um, and if it's too overwhelming um, to reach out to an attorney or, or a client because remember, or a consultant, because remember we're doing this for a wide variety of clients um, all the time, so we may have some of that information readily available. Um, the other tip I would have is just document everything as it's happening. Um, over document so that you don't have to recreate things um, later. Um, but I'll turn it over to Emily to see if she has any other additional tips. Yeah, no, I think what Courtney stated are great tips. From my perspective, you know, I'm always thinking about how does this work right now during the public health emergency and what is it going to look like when that emergency period ends? And Courtney hit on this at the end, um, but you know, as you navigate this period, this really unique period, you need to be thinking about what does your compliance look like when the public health emergency is lifted, right? So if that's tomorrow, is your relationship structured in accordance with the existing pre-COVID laws and regulations? Certainly some aspects of the practice of medicine are going to evolve as a result of this. Um, I think specifically about like um, telehealth, um, certain guidelines for establishing coordinate care, things like that are going to change. Um, and so that's going to be an ongoing um, evaluation of your practice, but having in place two sorts of paths that you can go on so that you're complying now and complying, you know, once the period lifts. And like Courtney said, identifying and describing and um, memorializing the things that you're doing to show your compliance right now are going to be critical when the period lifts. And if there are audits, so if you're, you know, the recipient of those provider relief funds showing where the money went and how it was used um, in accordance with the terms of the CARES Act, as well as the terms and conditions of the program. So that's it. Okay, great. Um, how about safe harbor? Is there a safe harbor under ECRA for W-2 employees like there is for um, anti-kickback statutes? I wish there was. It would make life easier. Um, but unfortunately, there isn't. And that is, you know, the thing that's made ECRA so confusing. 
Um, I think I alluded to this a little bit in the presentation, but you know, we don't understand yet how ECRA is supposed to play with the anti-kickback statute. Is it intended to preempt it? or is it intended to operate in some sort of parallel? Parallel. If that's the case, from my perspective, there needs to be some revision or legislative guidance because um, currently drafted, it is at odds with anti-kickback, which has exactly that, that W-2 safe harbor. So you can pay um, employees a percentage-based compensation under anti-kickback, but you don't have that same flexibility or safe harbor under ECRA. So I guess my, my advice is stay tuned. I think that's one of the points of clarification we're going to have to see with respect to ECRA, and I don't know when it will happen, but I, I'm hoping that it happens, you know, soon after the um, election this year, but that might be ambitious. Okay, and then how does a Stark or anti-kickback violation get discovered? Yeah, so that's a great question. Um, Courtney did mention the concept of whistleblowers. So oftentimes it's by somebody in your organization or in a competitor that um, is aware of a problematic relationship and then they tip it off to the government. Another way that this can happen is, you know, payers, particularly um, Medicare and Medicaid, they have what's known as data analytics software that is monitoring where um, claims are coming from and what CPT codes are being generated. And when there's an uptick in a particular CPT code, all of a sudden that doesn't fit the norm um, for that particular provider, that sort of sends up a red flag and Medicare might start initiating some sort of investigation. So it can come from a variety of places. I think your biggest vulnerability though is certainly um, through a whistleblower. Okay, and I think that we're almost out of time, so I think we'll just take this last question, um, but it's an interesting one. Um, if you violate the anti-markup rule, are you subject to the False Claims Act like under Stark and anti-kickback statute? Yeah, so you are, and I, um, looking back at the slides, realized that I left that out of the anti-markup discussion that we had, but yes, you are subject to the False Claims Act. So any referral that's generated, any work that's done um, in a problematic manner um, under the anti-markup rule, so you know, you're not meeting the site of service requirements or the 75% test, um, any work that's done in violation and then those claims are submitted to Medicare or Medicaid or TRICARE or what have you, um, those are subject to repayment. So you have the False Claims Act and then if you don't repay that money, right, if the government doesn't come after you as a false claim, um, you're subject to the Reverse False Claims Act, which Courtney went over. Okay. Well, I wanted to thank you both so much for being here. Very much appreciated. So thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us. Yes. Um, so, uh, and thank you attendees. Thank you for joining us as well. Uh, I wanted to remind you also that we have a uh, YouTube channel and you can find um, replays of our um, previous uh, webinars and we have um, former webinars um, from Emily and Courtney and, uh, and others from uh, McDonald Hopkins on there as well. So, uh, you know, be sure to look those up because they're uh, wonderful and informative webinars as well. So you can look those up on our, our YouTube channel under First Healthcare Compliance. Uh, please use the contact information um, that you can find when you download 
the uh, the slides, and you can do that again from a um, button on the side or the top of your screen, depending on where it is on your computer. And if you have any further questions, uh, you can send them on to us. If you if you've forgotten and you wanted to send them later, we'll forward them on to Emily and Courtney. And please remember your PACOM and PMI CEU certificate will be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it. You can also register for future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778. And thank you for joining us.